Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We are charging through the month of November. It's so November 15th today. Um, and we have a special guest. Uh, this is a friend of mine, a friend of Tammy's, somebody who has, I don't know, been around the podcast. Is that, do you think that's the right word? <laughs> Not on yes. it, but around. Um, I'm a fan. Uh, and uh, somebody who I guess was you're in the news a little bit, right? Like not it wasn't like a full on all right, but a little bit of the news recently. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm like the fifth paragraph in all the stories about Jasmine, so I'm only getting the tail end of the harassment. <laughs> okay, this is the voice you heard is uh, Jamie Kales, and um, yeah, Jamie was a contributor writer at the New York Times Magazine from 2019 to 2023, uh, where he covered culture. Um, he's probably best known, I think, for an Adam Sandler profile, uh, right? Like, is that correct? You, I'm just reading off the thing that you said. I, 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 I think, I'm not sure that's true. Um, that, but that- anecdotally what feels true on my end i don't know if i like that it's true but yeah <laughs> there's so know. many good pieces I, I, I but yeah like, that yeah. one is definitely got around a lot yeah like, i thought that piece was good too but um and uh <laughs> okay. jamie's working on a book about non-binary identity in america it'll be out in 2025 from fsg Ooh-hoo. and uh he's also the administrator of at sex change which is an Instagram-based public history project that recirculates trans archival materials focusing on the period between the dawn of the internet and the advent of Obamacare. Wow, why that, why that particular period? <laughs> um, there's a lot of trans archival stuff about sort of the period before the internet. And then there's this problem that I think historians generally are having, which is like, the internet has produced such a huge amount of content and it's so poorly archived that no one knows how to like use it for research or like process all of it. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really interesting time that I was been having to like work with a lot for my book. And then the advent of Obamacare is kind of just like trans surgery becomes way, way, way more accessible. So like it's this period that's both really, really recent, but then also extremely inaccessible. And I find that just like, I don't know, as I went on this little in- Instagram project people really wanted to see more stuff from it so it's my sort of crass attempt to like generate an audience for my book and i think it's working (laughs) (laughs) it's there's some really interesting stuff on there too and i feel like you're maybe a decade or so younger than jay and me but i love the screenshots of like live journal and the early geocity sites and you know and it just it's very like um it, it is fascinating that that is how we have to now remember it and that stuff is really to hard to it. that is, that stuff is very hard to search through. Totally, I mean, yeah. yeah. Like it's a lot of like way back machine, and then you have to click around, and then like you'll find exactly. something, but you'll be like, I don't even know how to understand what this is because it's just like totally. a free floating <laughs> website connected to nothing. Yeah. I know. I've recently had to do a bunch of way back machine stuff, and it it's just terrible. I mean, I'm glad it exists. Thank right? God for it's that. It's amazing right. that it yeah. exists, but. Yeah. It's incredible how many links are dead now. Totally. You know? I mean, I guess it's good because I don't know. I don't even remember what I was writing about in GeoCities back in like <laughs> 1997 or something like that when I was 17 years old. But um, it probably is not going to be particularly flattering. I actually have no – I probably was writing about basketball. Like, I can't actually remember it. But not your feelings. I was definitely writing something, right? <laughs> and at some point that was public and now it's probably – 
We're going to publish it as uh, the Kang Juvenalia. Also, exactly. it's like totally <laughs> under a pseudonym that um, I, there's probably seven of them and I don't remember all of them. I, do I don't even, yeah, I don't remember the things. I had a Zanga, which I, and I totally have no idea where it is or who it was under. <laughs> all my stuff was some version of being Asian. It was mm. like a mental oriental or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so good <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> i don't know whatever i wish i had been a little bit more creative and like not so identitarian back then you know but what am i gonna <laughs> do i was 17 years old um all right so i don't know jamie wanted to have you on the show for a couple reasons you know but mostly because I wanted to talk a little bit about what happened right um with uh you resigned from the new york times magazine uh, you know, I'm sure that some of the people listening to the show know that I also wrote for the New York Times Magazine in a similar capacity to you for, and I started in 2011, I think was the first, or 2010, the first piece that I wrote there. And I was there for like 12 years. And so um, the people, we all know the same people in common and I don't think have any hostility towards any particular individuals there, but um yeah like what was behind this resignation right like what 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 prompted it yeah so i guess there's like a little bit of going back in time that is necessary to set this up i mean like you said i loved working for the magazine and like you and i have talked about this a lot of like for better or for worse we like magazines and it's sort of like a curse um <laughs> of, of like career aspiration but yeah. um I had always sort of dreamed of working for the magazine and was enjoying my job there. Um, and I think some of my sort of my misgiving stuff started about labor. And I mentioned that because I think it's really tied into some of the questions about like free speech that come up in the midst of this. But like um, I came on as a, as a contributing writer, which is a 1099 job. So it's like not quite a freelancer, but you're not quite a staffer. You're basically making close to a whole salary with no benefits. And I think some of sort of my like, ambivalences about the times began when I first there's like the initial rush of like oh I have a title I work at the New York Times in some capacity but then you start yeah, thinking they gave me an email address that's like a big deal <laughs> right? yeah and it's then it's kind of this bigger question where it's like okay what do I owe the institution and what does the institution give yeah. me and like in the beginning when I first came on I was getting a lot from the institution right but then as you kind of move into your career and you're like there's work I want to be able to do or there's like relationships I want to be able to count on I think some of my frustrations with the magazine started with labor organizing stuff where like there's this whole pool of writers that are very talented and write most of the content in the magazine. And at the point where I started thinking about this, Jay was one of them. And we were like, it's really weird that like we have none of the guild protections. We're not part of yeah. the union, but also we do a lot of the work of this magazine. So like most, most of the, most work. Of the work of this magazine. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like there's a simmering resentment, obviously, that like as we go into the the several waves of culture war stuff that like bring me to the resignation. Like I think first I became aware of like some of the precarity and sort of what it could mean when uh, the Tom Cotton letter was published in opinion. Right. And a lot of black writers and just people that thought the letter was bogus or not the letter, like the op-ed was bogus started standing up and were like getting retaliation from the institution. So like that was some of the first time I was realizing like, okay, like, I got into this business of writing to like say things that are true. And like, mm -hmm. if there's a limit on what can be said, like that probably puts a timeline on like my ability to do work here. Right. Because like right now I'm not trying to write about the Tom Cotton letter, but like, I think it's stupid. And I think it's like the ability to say something about it should be built into the work of what being a journalist is. Right. 
And I think a lot of people at the Times like have these pieties about like what it means to New York work for the New York Times. And people really think of it as like, oh, we're a family, like maybe not a family, but like it's once you're in, you could potentially be in for life if that's what you want. And I, I think just like my affinities as a writer are like to the higher cause of like, I want to be able to write things that are good and true. And I don't really care if it happens at the New York Times or the New Yorker or on a Substack or wherever. Right. So like the Tom Cotton letter is what started me thinking about this stuff. And then uh, in the summer, a tra- a letter, a letter circulated sort of criticizing the magazine or the paper's trans coverage. Um, and I have to say, like, if I wrote the letter myself, I would have written it differently. But as one of the only like very few trans writers working for the magazine and certainly one of the more like publicly visible ones working for the institution, I'm sorry, just in general, like I felt obligated to sign it whether or not I would have written it the same way myself. So I signed it and then received a reprimand like an, like all the other times people that signed it basically being like, you can't be signing open letters if you work here. Um, And the justification for that was that the letter criticized directly the work of other Times employees, which I guess is a fair case. But basically, I told them, I was like, listen, like, I'm a 1099 worker. I don't work here. So, like, if you want (laughs) to have some ownership of my public speech, like, as an ambassador of the Times, you need to hire me. And I don't want to get in the weeds of all this, but there was sort of like a half-hearted attempt made to give me a job, which is the kind of things that happens when you're on one of these contracts. Mm -hmm. and. Of course, the job yeah, never pans out. Absolutely. I had like several of those. Yeah, I mean, just to clarify some, not even just to clarify, just to hop on here a little bit. It's like these jobs are very, they're great and people are very lucky to have them. I certainly would not complain about the position I'm in. But, you know, when I left for to go get this, to do this job, which was in 2014, I left the New Yorker. And um, I went because Jake had just been, Jake Silverstein is the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Magazine, had just been hired. And he was interested in having me do a writing job. And I was like, great, I want to be a writer. You know, like at the time, I didn't really want to edit anymore. And um, so I left. And then, you know, like the idea was to give enough words so that uh, enough of a word count and enough pieces published so that you could replace the salary that I was making at the time, which wasn't uh, the greatest salary, but it was pretty good, you know. Yeah. And, and with benefits like, I and I never got right? close to that salary ever you know and it wasn't out of a lack of effort it was because there are too many people who are in our position to actually fill the magazine uh to give enough pieces assigned and there are people yes who do sort of fulfill those contracts and get them done i personally never did right like I, there were years where i made like thirty six thousand dollars of 1099 income and this was my primary job with like living in new york city it was not easy right like and um at some point they're like you're gonna be one of our main contributing writers or what I forget what the writers at large or something like that. And that it was like seen as this big promotion. And I was, what I was given was uh email address. <laughs> Here's your email address. And I was like, and so like, yeah, it's this real interesting thing where it's like, I don't know, Jamie, you and I talked about this a lot where it's just like, look, I'm willing to make some sacrifices of my just unbridled speech if you give me health insurance, you know, then I'll think about it. You know, <laughs> if I'm a real employee with like a pension, if I'm part of the guild, yes. Like, you know, there are other responsibilities right. that obviously come with that because now you're part of, but at the, to the point where 
we ask for those types of jobs and oftentimes we're just sort of given a two-year runaround, right? Or some, in some piece, in some people's cases, like four-year runaround, five-year runaround, right? Like that, the case for us then being, rep- now I was never reprimanded because I left before any of this happened, but like if I had been reprimanded, I would have been livid, you know? I'm just like, like what, what standing do you have to reprimand me when I'm just like a contract employee and whatever contract non-competes you put in there are actually quite illegal right but you still put them in there anyway so like you know like what standing do you have to reprimand me at all right like this is just a place where i published and um yeah it seems like like that 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 labor part of it i think is really important to understand yeah. like in terms of all of this so yeah well, anyway and, i don't know I if just... i just repeated everything you said but I <laughs> mostly just plus yes ending as they say <laughs> can i just ask jamie like what were you doing in terms of healthcare and benefits like since you weren't getting that from the times and and also what did your contract say about politics and speech Honestly, I haven't really gone back and consulted my contract because when I get to the end of this story, I just end up resigning anyway. Um, <laughs> but and, and I'll talk about like sort of how yeah, I arrived. Sorry, at that we interrupted thing. your story, but <laughs> no, no. But I mean, for, honestly, I've been really lucky with health insurance because of COVID. Honestly, I've been on some loophole of Medicaid for basically like four years now or something, where like it happened to be that the income year that the COVID. Medicaid mm. income was based on was a year I made a lot less money than I've made in some other years. And now I'm writing a book. So like technically this year I've made $0 because I got my advance last year. So like I've been yeah. riding like a wave of good luck with health insurance. And like, I, I mean, I help a lot of other freelancers like do the health insurance portal because people don't understand that like you need to incorporate as a business. You need to be paying yourself a salary through your S corp, like all these uh-huh. things. But it's like, I kind of just like have invested a good amount of like money and time, like knowing how to run this as a business. And like, that's just ludicrous. Cause it's like, it's not like I'm like a doctor that incidentally writes one healthcare article for a magazine per year. <laughs> right. Like this is my full-time job. <laughs> like theoretically I could get a mortgage against the income I'm making. Right. Like this is a, my life's right. work. Um, so it's just pretty insane to be like, I'm operating as if this is like, a part-time thing. And I don't say this because it's like, oh, what was me? I'm a New York Times contributor yeah, right. that like I'm not being accorded like the correct amount of glory because no. like I really don't care about that. But like I do think it's just like the Times is the glitziest version of it and it's only worse sort of as you go throughout the industry, right? Like the vast majority of news articles anywhere are written by people with no labor protections who are expected to treat this like it's a part-time job they do for fun. Right. And then they're right. you're expected to say thank you for it, right? In exchange for like the opportunity to have a creative livelihood, which is like if we want to be in a functioning society in which news exists, like part of that is compensating people that do that work. Absolutely, yeah. So I think we we caught you after the Tom Cotton, but you had other steps in your story. I know that you wanted. Yeah, to so we were at the trans letter. So I signed this trans letter. Yeah, February twenty twenty two, twenty three. That went out, right? Honestly, I, at this point, time is collapsing. Um, Earlier this year, that went out. Yeah. Yeah. So I signed this letter. And honestly, like the process of being reprimanded, it was so like hugely humiliating, right? Because one, I'm a trans person and no non-trans editor wants to come face to face and tell me that I can't sign this letter, right? So it's like (laughs) already I'm like, it's humiliating on your part to have to do this whole song and dance. And it's humiliating for me to sit there. But then there's the thing of like, we both know it's a formality, right? Because I know you can't do anything to me because I don't work here. And you know, you can't do anything to me because I don't work here. So it's like, why are we doing this? So like, I I have no personal animosity towards anyone, but I'm a little bit just like, 
this is stupid. I don't want to participate in this. Mm -hmm. It's like degrading as someone that spent like my entire life becoming good at my job. I just, I don't want to do it. So yeah, so I signed this letter and then I said, okay, well, like I'm not making you any promises. I'm not going to sign more letters, but like I hear what you're saying and I understand the Mm -hmm. terms of this agreement. So basically the Writers Against the War on Gaza letter came out and again, it was a no brainer for me to sign it. I mean- do I believe that open letters do things? That's another question. But like, if there's a list of writers being generated that oppose the war, I want to be on that list because the absence from the list speaks quite loudly, in my opinion. Um, so I signed the letter and it, honestly, no one for the first week reprimanded me. I had a vague sense that it was coming and like in, in some ways, and I'm not, I don't want to speak for any other contributors, but like, it feels like that's maybe being borne out as true. Um, But I kind of just decided, honestly, like I went with Jasmine that day. um, Jasmine is Jasmine Hughes, who's Jasmine Hughes, who was the staff uh, staff writer at the at the magazine. You, um, I don't know how to describe what happened, just because I haven't talked to Jasmine personally. But you know, from my understanding, like, what what was your understanding of it? Because you're closer. Yeah. So basically, I sent this letter to Jasmine, being like, "Hey, do you want to sign this?" She's like, oh, shit, now I'm forced into some, okay, I'm going to sign it. Like, Jasmine is unfortunately, for better or for worse, like, on the right side of history all the time. Um, And so she signed the letter, um, and she can speak to sort of her own history of being reprimanded within the Times Institution. But, yeah, like, there was sort of a turn of events, and she ended up resigning, perhaps not quite of her own accord. I'll let her speak for sort of why she left, but... Um, and she had also signed the letter about trans coverage at the Times. Yeah, and I think had been involved in some situations around the Tom Cotton stuff. But really, I don't want to talk to Jasmine's situation. Sure, like, sure, yeah. But I don't know. Anyway, the, the short answer is we both signed this letter and we both were like, I don't know, something's maybe coming. We happen to be speaking to a class of students. Every year we go speak at Columbia to a class of journalism students. We've done this oh, for wow. maybe six or seven years together. <laughs> And we're talking to the students about kind of like our relation to the times and what it means to work to an institution. And one of the students just said, well, why do you keep doing this? It sounds horrible. And at the time I gave some speech like, oh, well, you know, all institutions have trade-offs, right? Which is something I believe, like you don't go work anywhere. You're always exchanging something in exchange for the money. But I kind of just went home and I was like, honestly, like I don't really, I'm not making enough money. (laughs) <laughs> or like getting anything really so good to walk around apologizing for the New York Times. And I, I, I kind of felt like I was not trying to leave as part of like a political statement, right? Like I really believe strongly in a free Palestine, but like to center myself and my resignation as part of that just didn't, I didn't want to be at the center of a culture mm-hmm. war thing. Yeah. And I didn't want to sit through the reprimand thing. So I said, okay, I'm just going to resign quietly. And like, it seems that the time had come. The only reason I'm talking to you is because then Jasmine was pushed out and we kind of both got picked up as like part of a news cycle around this where it kind of gets inserted alongside all the other culture war, free speech bullshit. But I don't know. To me, like the decision to sign the letter seemed pretty obvious just because it's like it one, it's like there's no reason to be a journalist unless you can say things that are true. And two, there's especially no reason to hamper that if you don't have a job anywhere that gives you benefits. Right. So like it just made sense to me. And then I think just like the decision to leave downwind of that was just like, I started being like, okay, well, like what does the times do for me that like I couldn't do on my own? And I think that's where a lot of people increasingly are landing and you see people like on Substack or they go to another institution that like mm-hmm. doesn't sort of like fraught relationship to like what type of speech it's contractors can engage in. Yeah. 
Can I ask both of you a question? Because I didn't sign the letter, and it was, you know, I certainly was aware of it, given that... Oh, so you love Israel, Jay? <laughs> given that, given that... And I, the reason why I didn't sign it was because I just don't sign open letters, period, and I just find that, like, I don't... I, I guess I have a different perspective on it, and it's... I think it's worth talking about. In my sense of it, I look, I don't think I'm right or wrong or whatever, right? But it's just, like, my sense is that at the point where you're a writer and you're given some benefit of having a platform to give these, your thoughts on things that it is your responsibility at that point to just write about it, you know, and that um, signing an open letter, parts of which you may or may not agree with. It's not really the, it's not the pragmatic question of does this do anything? I don't care about that. You know, like I would imagine it probably <laughs> doesn't, you know, but like what can we really do, period, right? Writing an article doesn't do anything really either, right? <laughs> I mean, um, and so uh, so it's not that. It's just the question of like should should writers just write the things that they think, right, on an individual level and should they – does signing an open letter or sort of being part of this larger group, does it, does it sort of obviate, I don't know if that's the right word, does it sort of make the responsibility to be a writer and write about these things less, right? Does it make you, does it sort of absolve people in a way um, to kind of, to just sign on with something and to not try and use the full force of one's reporting and writing abilities to do that. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't think it is, right? Like, I think that a lot of people will do that type of thing. But that's generally my argument against it, right? Which is just that, like, I don't want to sign an open letter just because I don't feel like it is really the writer's responsibility to sign these things. It's writer's responsibility to make the arguments themselves. But I don't know, like, that might be a very, like, sort of anarcho individual type of thing that I might be thinking. <laughs> I, at get, that point. I get but, what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, Jamie, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've been puzzling a lot of this out, right? Because like, then there's also the question of like, well, am I a writer or like, what is anyone in this moment, right? Where you have like a strange platform where it's like, I'm a person who writes, but also I'm on social media. And also I'm not famous, but people care about what I think, right? And I think both of you occupy like a similar position where like, you're writers, but you have a podcast and also like people in some ways, maybe care a little bit, or at least like roll you up into the broader constellation of like, what are the people who are interesting saying about yeah. this? Um, I mean, ideally, I think I would be writing about it, right? Like, certainly I wouldn't be going on a podcast. I write a lot better than I speak. But like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. For for me, I guess, like, the fact of the matter was, was like, I wasn't probably going to write about it. Like, it's not what I write about. I'm working on a book. I do a lot of celebrity profiles. Like, I'm certainly not <laughs> someone that's like, like, I can speak a lot to sort of like the media labor stuff. But like, beyond the baseline thing of like, I don't think we should have an ethno state for Jews. And I say that as a Jew. And also like, I don't think we should be keeping millions of people in an open air prison. Like beyond that, I don't think I'm really like the go-to person for an analysis on the situation. <laughs> so like, if I'm not going out looking for an open letter, but if someone's asking me to sign one, I guess I'm just like, well, it, it costs me very little and it's stuff I would say elsewhere anyway. But yeah, I guess every, every like decision of like what you're going to do or not do, it's just like, a triangulation of like, how much can I risk right now? Do I even think it's going to accomplish anything? Right? Like, I'm not going to lie and say that, like, I wasn't on some level just looking for an exit from my job too. like, right. I think it's like at any point in your career, like you're thinking about like how much of your pub your private self needs to be public. And I think for me, just like 
as a, as like I don't I like like one I went and when I was speaking to the students, someone was like, well, "Would you just be signing any open letter? Like, would you be signing a letter like for the Uyghurs or something?" And I was like, "I don't know. Like, I guess on some level, like my sense of complicity in this as a Jew made me, and also as a journalist, like made me more inclined yeah. to sign this letter. Like, would I sign any letter in favor of oppressed peoples? Like, I think it would go on like a case by case situation. Um, and I don't think I can like answer that in sort of a general sense. This is just like what I chose to do now." But I, I sort of agree with you. Like, I'm not a big believer in the open letter. But Tammy, why'd you, or yeah. like, you know, like, just like, what, what yeah. was important about it for you to organize yeah. this thing? I mean, it was a big deal. It got 8,000 signatures, I think, or 8,000 plus signatures. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are actions that are happening that uh, some are pretty well publicized, right? Like, I believe that you took part in the action in the lobby of the New York Times, for example, right? Um, and that there were, is that true or not true? That I, seemed like, well, I'm in, I'm in Korea, so I couldn't make it, but Not yeah, you, like I'm saying the group, yeah, yeah. the group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Group I don't want to confirm or deny anything about uh I was going to say that the action in the New York Times was taken by a group called Writer's Block, which okay. has members that overlap with Wawag, but um, Wawag yeah. definitely helped orchestrate the Bryant Park to the Times March. Okay. Well, um, what was the, what was and, the, yeah, like, what's the thing yeah. behind the open letters generally? I don't, I'm not trying to interrogate anybody. No, no, no. I mean, I, I think it's just, a totally fair curious, question. Yeah. And I, another really close friend of mine um, did not sign the letter and kind of had a similar position where he feels like as a writer, he wants to just write his own stuff. And he knows some stuff about the region and, you know, felt that through his reportage and, and essays, he could make the most impact. And I totally re- agree and respect that. And, um, I think in this case for me, <clears throat> I felt like it was, I knew it was going to be an organizing vehicle and that was important to me. And I, f- I just personally feel like in my past, I, like when I was for the early rock wars, like I was not politically engaged. Like I was very young and I could have done a better job and I have regrets around that. And I think this war more than other recent wars that the United States has engaged with has really hit me with its just viscerality and speed. And um, I, I think as kind of what along the lines with what Jamie was saying, like, I am not an expert in this region. I don't write about this region. I don't really know anything as like a reporter about this to the extent that I could make an impact. And I felt like I would be more useful doing this from a sort of like labor and writing organizing perspective. Um, So I felt like engaging in this collective piece of writing was more useful for me. Um, You know, I, I haven't heard anything from, I mean, I'm a you know, in a contributing writing position. So a lot of the stuff you guys said about your position at the Times is now currently true for me at the New Yorker. And um, thankfully, I haven't heard anything. And I think that generally, the New Yorker has respected um, the perspectives of its people who have signed this letter. Yeah, I think but... there's like a weird thing with the Times of being a magazine inside a newspaper. Exactly. Right? Like, I think a magazine as a format can sort of like absorb a lot of different opinions whereas a magazine in a newspaper has to answer to like the priorities of a newspaper i think that's right i mean i had a contributing opinion writer contract at the times and there were a couple of things that i was just doing like into my individual capacity that i had i heard things about from the editors and i was like i get like i don't know four thousand dollars from you like this year like i don't understand why we're having this conversation you know (laughs) so um um, yeah, I mean, it's it's very weird. There's supposed to be these firewalls between the magazine, between the newsroom, between the newsroom, between opinion, but all of that is somewhat fictional, right? So then they exert these forms of pressure. 
Yeah, I mean, I think some of the firewalls are more real than the other ones. I don't think that there's really a firewall between the magazine and the newsroom, for example, right? Like they can say, oh, we have a big piece on this coming. And so please don't write a magazine piece about it. With opinion, I think it's a little bit more real, right? Like, um, and I do think columnists, for example, are given a leeway that others aren't. But then the pressure, of course, is real. Like none of the New York Times columnists, except for like two of them are on Twitter, for example, and that's not because yeah. like there's some rule that they can't be. It's just kind of like, <laughs> all right, is it really worth it to you guys to to have? And for most of them, the answer is no, which I totally understand because all they do is get sc- screamed at all day. Like I wouldn't want <laughs> right. to, I wouldn't be want to be on Twitter if every time I wrote like everybody in the you know like fifteen thousand people are screaming at me all the time. But I do think that you know there's overall pressure. But I don't know. I think the magazine was a little bit more beholden to the newsroom than maybe the opinion desk was but i don't know i'm just speculating who knows like it's not like i ever worked inside of that building right like i did have a job inside of the building at some point but um you know most of my time was just spent as like some guy that nobody would recognize in the elevator on the very few moments i went in (laughs) it is a little bit of like a mystery to me like sort of how the for lack of a better word, like party line within an institution gets established, right? Because like mm-hmm. in my work covering anything for the magazine, like I've, except for maybe one instance, I've never felt like there was like a boundary on what could be said. Like certainly there's things that like you need to explain for like the presumed New York Times magazine reader, but I, I never felt like there was like an analysis being imposed on me from top down. And I do sort of like the thing that remains mysterious to me after the trans coverage stuff and the stuff with Israel is kind of like, how does this, what is assumed to be the objective position within the paper? Like, I don't know where that comes from or sort of like what would happen if someone within the institution was like making an effort to publish things that like went counter to it. Like that's, uh-huh. I, well, do you have any uh, sense of there are, there are argument, not, look, we can push back on it, right? But I think their argument would be that, look, there's no, there's no thing you can't say, right? But what you can't do is criticize the institution or the reporters inside of it specifically, right? And no, so, I, I mean, like, right. how does the news get produced? Like, when people say, oh, the Times has biased trans coverage, like, what is the mechanism through which that's... Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've never work? understood that either, yeah. what, the, what, the, what people are envisioning happening. But Tammy and I have, I talked, have talked yeah, about I this really. And actually, there's been some pushback on our Discord about it, but... I will just repeat that, like, I don't think that that type of thing exists so much and certainly not to the degree that people seem to think it does. Like, I just think that there's generally 2,000 to 3,000 people working and all they talk, the only way that they can communicate with each other is on this curse Slack server, right? And that, um, and that they try and have meetings over Zoom and that they try and coordinate these things. But the idea that, like, there is somebody behind the curtain saying, this is our coverage. Now, maybe it happens at some level that I don't know, but I never saw that. And I would say that I, I don't know, like when I was working in opinion, like it wasn't like I was so far from like, you know, the center of these things in the way that I was at the magazine where I like never went into the office ever, you know? Um, and that I don't, I don't know. I just don't think that that type, do you think that that, 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 that exists? Like that the man behind the curtain there is real? Well, I, I think there, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, I think Jay, what what like Jay's saying is like we've talked about how a lot of this stuff is just people reacting to the news and having stand ups at nine a.m. and being like, oh my god, what are we going to put out today? And and like the Atlantic just did this thing, so we need to do this, and so that sort of chaos, I think. Um, but I do think there is something about like a kind of like suburban dad kind of effect, right? Where there is like, especially with culture war stuff, which is the stuff we're talking about, which produces these anxieties. I think there are these higher up editors who are sort of like, oh, well that, you know, like, like, for example, I'll just talk about like, maybe the stuff around, um, you know, like the trans bathroom stuff and like the trans athlete stuff, like the stuff that is like relatively kind of like marginal in like this larger movement picture and legal picture, but kind of really gets the goat of like the suburban dad. <laughs> and I think sometimes there is a production of feelings around those sorts of issues that does come down from the top because they are the ones who are sort of okaying that. And so they might, you know, subtly or explicitly transmit to their you know, um, the people that they're supervising, hey, shouldn't we have a story on that? And, and you know, shouldn't we kind of like go against oh, yeah, a sort yeah, of like yeah. whatever, like, def- woke? For sure, for sure. Right. So yeah. I think like yeah. to that extent, yes. But the man behind the curtain, like kind of dictating and producing this sort of like stock thing, like probably not. But I, but I think like these messages do get transmitted. Yeah, I think like, like the trans stuff, it's really interesting to me because it's like, Right. Like I've been working on this book for now a year and a half. So like arguably I'm a subject matter expert on this a bit. And like there are two sides to a lot of questions that deal with trans things. Right. Like the question of like, what's the best way to steward any child into adulthood? Like what Mm -hmm. types of things do children need to for support? Like what degree of medicalization is like supportive versus like what is like like I don't know it's just like there's all these questions right about how do you raise a good kid totally and like I don't think these are unaskable questions but I think something that happens a lot in like times coverage of this stuff is like they falsely identify who the two sides of the argument right where they say well there's a trans side and then there's an anti-trans side Mm -hmm. but really like this is like medical stuff that's been going on for like decades now and like there are certainly like within sort of like the trans affirming side of things doctors that say like oh, this is good. Or there's trans people that say, oh, I wish I would have waited two more years, or I wish I would have had medical care two years earlier, or I wish I would have had like this support structure around asking the questions about like, what kind of care would be good for me now, right? So like, I think the times like, if you when people like send a suburban dad parachuting into the subject matter, and they say, well, I need to come up with two sides of the story isn't biased, they pick the wrong two sides, which like, to me, it's like, I don't know, it's like there's this mystification or and this I think applies to like the Israel situation too, right? Where the issue becomes mystified and basic critical thinking skills that you would apply to covering any other subject matter suddenly vanish because it's supposed yeah. to be this thing that's like so complex or difficult. And I think like it's like reporting on anything else where it's like, okay, you have to like ask a bunch of people and then you kind of see like where where are the different layers of expertise and where do they conflict and what are the institutions that produce them, right? Like I don't think it's rocket science. And in some level, I think like there's just I don't I don't know like what happens and but um, I don't know it just depresses me because it's like I would like to think my colleagues are a little bit smarter. Well, I get that. Yeah, I I feel like I don't know. I was thinking about because I wrote this piece about uh, you know what I thought was like kind of silly censorious actions by some of these media companies. Um, I liked it, and I felt like most like the Hearst policy, for example, where oh like company-wide they're monitoring the likes you put on your tweets and they're monitor they're asking employees to ask other to rat out other employees like i just like it's just pathetic right like to me at least but one of the things that i thought about during writing that piece was like basically i wanted to 
to run it by you is just like it's like interesting to me where it's like I feel like there's almost too much media criticism <laughs> these days that it occupies a little bit too much of the way in which things are discussed <laughs> uh that too many things are blamed on the media in a way that like is a little bit silly right like um and that I wonder like if the parsing of the media right like my thing is like i had a line in there that i eventually got cut out but it was like basically everybody believes that everyone has uh everyone's manufactured everyone's consent is manufactured except theirs right like everybody (laughs) believes that everybody like is sort of duped by these media companies only they can see like the evil lies that the new york times keeps telling or the bbc keeps telling or fox news keeps telling or whatever And I feel like it just occupies a little bit too much of the discourse on anything. And especially, I think, around what is happening in Gaza, right, where like there are real questions about journalism in Gaza. But I don't think it's like a New York Times headline or a New York Times tweet that is like the important issue. The important issue is that these journalists are getting killed. Right. And that they won't allow any other journalists in. Right, Like those are that's like the main journalistic issue. But the idea that there is like some sort of constant shading towards some sort of consent or another, I just like, I don't know, like I maybe that is true, but I just find it to be really sort of odd. It's like the the real main point of media that is powerful in this situation is the video footage, right? It's the video footage of dead people, dead children um, and that type of stuff. Yes, that also has certain biases in them it has all sorts of stuff around them that should all be parsed but like there's this weird thing where it's like i almost think it's a textual nature of twitter where people are you know they see it they have critical thinking skills and then they parse the text almost by reflex and then it's supposed to be much more important than it is i don't know i think you're underestimating like how um how much power legacy media has as like an authenticator of a position for people that are like older than 55 like i feel like if you grew up in a time when like the news was the final word on things and you had no other access to like direct knowledge of a situation like i think the new york times still carries a lot of weight and like with the trans stuff right you see it cited in supreme court cases and i'm looking at that and i'm like well i've written the new york times and i wouldn't cite anything that i wrote in a supreme court case (laughs) so like i just think like there is a little bit of like people don't think about sort of like the fact that news is made by individuals like there's still this blind thing that like if the institution of the New York Times puts its stamp on something, that must mean it's true in some sense. I don't think that really like applies for people our age and younger, right? Like there's more of a sense that like news is just a job that someone does and like maybe you sort of logarithmically approach truth, but like you can get it wrong, certainly. I, yeah, I also true. would say that, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not on social media at all anymore except for our discord i mean i have a twitter lurker account that i look at like once a week that counts but, so I'm stop not... that counts <laughs> also okay, i don't I'm believe like... once a week i don't believe that for a second oh it's absolutely true ever <laughs> okay. since february like i barely look at and so i think like the flow i mean i've said this before but jay you're consuming so much different kinds of media than i am like i barely have seen any videos i mean i you know part of it's i think maybe just to protect myself from some of those images but Every morning, the first thing I do when I wake up is I read all the stuff on the New York Times app. I swear to God, like maybe I'm in the 55 plus bracket in my news consumption. But when I see those headlines sure. that are like, you know, bombing kills X people in southern Gaza, Palestinians say every single headline is or deck is hedged with the Palestinians say, according to some Palestinians. I mean, it breaks my brain. 
And I also right, see but the Times also was it. like their visual desk is also the one that like did the investigation into the hospital bombing, right? And to show that the Israeli... and the Washington Post did that too. Yeah, I mean, right. certainly right. yes. But I I think also like whenever I'm in Korea, I'm also very conscious of the way in which those headlines get translated and transmitted around the world in publications. So the entire understanding of certain aspects of the analysis of this war from the Western perspective are directly translated based on New York Times headlines here and in many other countries. And it's so disturbing. So I, I think like, yeah, I, I I totally share that skepticism. But I think in this instance, I actually am seeing it producing so much bad faith work in journalism that it, it's quite shocking to me. I'm curious, like for me as like a Jewish person that went through Jewish summer camp and Hebrew school and just being surrounded by Jewish family and other Jewish people, right? Like for me to develop like a critical language to be able to read a New York Times headline and understand what about it was biased, like that took probably like 10 years of unlearning a lot of things that I was told to be true. And I'm curious, like as people that I'm assuming are not Jews, like how much of that was like reaching you as the baseline sense of reality and sort of how much unlearning did you have to do to be like, cause like I can read the New York times instrumentally and know like, if this shows up, this is something that I should be Googling and checking out other sources on, because I see that like, this is the kind of thing that would be misrepresented in the New York times. But like, that's just a really high degree of media literacy that I think the average person is just not investing yeah. in. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I have the media diet of like a 22 year old chaotic, <laughs> you know, person at Bard College or something like that. And so I don't, and I've always been that way, you know, but I don't think I ever really had a period of time where I read the newspaper or anything like that. And so I think that my baseline assumption though, was always that, you know, there was some sort of, that I, I think I did for many years believe that, you know, that there was like a person behind the curtain and that they were, you know, that they were manufacturing consent. And like, you know, I did agree with Chomsky about everything and I think it was just seeing the chaos inside of these institutions and getting, you know, that maybe sort of disabused me of that. It was well, literally I'm like, a, this is not possible, right? Like, like there's, <laughs> there's like there, yes, there are there directives inside of these institutions, of course, right? Um, no, I agree with you on that. I'm more just curious, yeah. like, was there sort of like a point at which you assumed that Israel was the good guy and you had to unlearn that? Or was that like... Oh. No, I don't think I ever had an opinion about it at all, right? Like the only, um, like it wasn't really something that was ever forced inside of my head. And I will say that you know, even growing up in North Carolina, where in a place where there were some Jews, but not that many Jews, right? But that those Jews were mostly my friends. Like most of my friends were the Jewish kids at our school, and um, I would say that yeah, it was interesting to see them walk. Like I was, seeing, I was talking to my friend about it the other day, and I was like. Do you remember like our friend Matt had like a IDF shirt that he wore all the time oh, and we thought about it. It was like, that's so weird. <laughs> you know, like it was wow. And then uh, it wasn't just him, it was like a lot of the kids, you know, like there was but there was no awareness of what that was, right? It was just like that was their way of saying, Hey, I'm Jewish at this big school in North Carolina and um isn't like I'm gonna wear this shirt to sort of say that. And there was all sorts of other performances that we had. I mean, we had a we had a rec basketball team. It was me and my Jewish friends and it was called the all stars of David. And, um, <laughs> like it was me and all the Jewish kids on campus. And like, there was like a 
type of self-identification in that sort of way but certainly the ids stuff was part of that right like and that was like i i didn't even think about it back then i just thought it was like a green t-shirt that those kids wore you know but now that i think back on it yeah i mean it must have been intense for them right like i talked to a friend now who did not grow up with me but he was talking to me about it and he was like yeah like when I was 15, me and our other friend who we talked to all the time, like we went and we spent five weeks, I think, uh, basically, you know, playing soldier in Israel. Right. And like, it's just like, it's just weird to think about that right now. Um, and to think about Hebrew school and everything like that. And yeah, I think, but for, for me personally, no, like there was, there was like, I think that I basically grew up with zero opinion about it, right? Other than, oh, that's complicated, Ugh, right? Like that was sort of the default. Mm. I don't know, Tammy, what about you? Yeah, I was going to say, I have a different perspective. I, I had, I knew two Jewish families until I went to college in Tacoma, <laughs> okay. Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and this question of kind of Israel-Palestine really wasn't on my radar at all until I was basically a young adult. But the way that Israel was presented to me in which I was conditioned to understand it was through evangelical Christianity, mm. which I think is probably the experience of a lot of Asian Americans. Um, my, my parents are atheists, but I happen to it's a long story, but I had a lot of exposure to it and was kind of like in evangelical. <laughs> wait, wait, what's like the Korean. story? You like your I parents mean, were atheists, very, but you were, you went to church. You had it was like, ridiculously like... boring, but yeah, basically my parents were like, we want you guys to let me and my brother, like we want you guys to like know Koreans and the only place to meet Koreans is church. So like we went to church, yeah. even though my parents like don't believe in it at all. Um, but I kind of fell for it and was into it for a while. And in church, it's like Israel is like the inheritor state embodiment of like that whole biblical story. Right. So like I, in Korea, like right now I can go out to the main plaza where the conservatives gather and they always hold flags that are Israel, South Korea, United States. And this predates the current war. I mean, this right. is like a representation of kind of like dem democracy and Christianity, you know, tied together. So it's a really terrible, like a historical, absolutely sort of like untethered way, uh, unhinged way of perceiving Israel. But I think that's not uncommon. Can I ask you a random question about that since you're in Korea? Sure. Um, you know, like a lot of people have sort of seen some of the protests in Ireland and uh, in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And those make sense, right? If you think about it in terms of like, oh, well, we're, you know, like we also understand being sort of a press colonized yeah. organ, um, place and we stand with Palestine. Like there's a huge display during the championship league game at you know when glasgow celtic i forget who they're playing but you know like it was you know thousands of palestine flags in the crowd in scotland why is that not true in korea right like i mean like it's uh the idea is is there now i think i kind of know why but i just was curious what you thought about it right like it's like oh well it's u.s empire right um colonized people like by everybody in asia basically at this point right yeah. and that um like wh why is there no sort of or what is the state there like is of of how people feel about this yeah no i mean i think that discourse of that korea has a history of being colonized and therefore we should stand up for other colonized people exists among a very small sliver of right. the left. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, would say yeah, like yeah. right now the left in Korea is extremely weak and we're under right. an authoritarian president. So the discourse that's like possible, that's feasible right now is like extremely limited. But I think in addition to that is exactly what you said, which is that Korea is part of the U.S. imperial project and right. is so tied up in U.S. foreign policy and supporting it. I think the other thing that I'm kind of like 
which is like part of my like longer research interest is that like South Korea is a huge arms manufacturer that has modeled itself in the pattern of Israel in the United States. And so South Korea is selling arms to that region. North Korea is also selling arms to that region. It's a very complicated picture in which, you know, South Korea can't with any in good conscience at all actually like object to some of the stuff that's happening. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Jamie, if you like you're our guest, but we're talking so much. Um, no, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, I let's let's switch here uh, to because you wrote something right on your Substack, and it's was t- and I I found it actually quite moving, and it was do I believe that there should be questions that should never be asked, and I want to ask you about a little bit about why you wrote this, and then and one thing specifically that you said, which is you know, and it's something that I've noticed myself, right, which is, and you wrote that. Um, at the end of this, you write, I do not particularly care whether other American Jews agree with me, and I offer this list solely for the edification of my mother. And you also, <laughs> and that is a reference to the idea that, um, that maybe like what American Jews think about this isn't the most important thing to think about right now, right? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Just because, you know, our show is, you know, basically, uh, we talk a lot about that type of idea and so yeah can you like what what do you mean by that yeah it's funny because i think a big genre of writing by american jews on this subject is like sort of the whatever the equivalent is to like the smelly lunchbox essay right where it's like (laughs) sort of very (laughs) self-focused indulgent thing about like cultural difference and learning to unlearn sort of the trauma of growing up jewish and oh, I went to camp and I had happy memories there, but also Zionism and I had to unlearn it, right? And like, on the one hand, I like find this type of thing, not only self-indulgent, but like, it it doesn't really matter, right? Because like, there's not that many American Jews and numerically, like, I think we're important symbolically in the fight to like, show up to be like, look, this isn't an anti-Semitic cause. This is like a reasonable appeal Mm -hmm. to justice. And like, it's important for American Jews to be there. But like, Ultimately, I believe Palestine is going to be free whether or not people at 92nd Street Y care about it, right? Like, um, we're not that, there's not that many of us as Jews. I mean, that's part of sort of our our grand problem in history, but like, uh, they're not taking a vote of like my aunts and uncles and then deciding to free Palestine. So, like, I don't think it's the most useful place to be investing energy. That said, I do think American Jews should be showing up to this stuff because, like, it is our fight. It's fucked up that it's like being laundered in our name, but whatever. So, like, I'm hesitant to like be engaged in too much of that. But then also I really am interested in the question of sort of how do people's opinions change on this subject, right? Because like I was once somewhat like I've been to Israel twice. One of them was on a birthright trip. Hmm. Like I've been directly to exposed to like a good amount of the indoctrination. And like my own personal relationship has like been interesting to me in the same way it is interesting to all those people who wrote those essays. Right. Because like, it's pretty crazy to go through life believing one thing to be true and then to unlearn it and be like, how did I ever believe that? And just like on the level of like knowing other Jews who are like having stressful relationships with their families right now, like there was a Judaism before Zionism and there will be a Judaism after it. And sort of the question of like, how do we move our own people from, one project into the next project is interesting to me as someone that like does care a lot about Judaism and is interested in the question of like, well, what does it mean to be a Jew without Israel? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been talking to my mom and she, I think is probably rightfully concerned that like I'm being perceived by like her friends as like some kind of political radical. And that's fine with me, but like, 
I, I guess just because I love my mother, I would like to like extend something <laughs> to consent to them. Right. So like, to me, it was like really a process of just like, well, what would happen if like, right. Like, like Jay, like I was like, it's a complex situation. I'm going to avoid thinking about mm-hmm. this. And that took me all the way through to like, honestly, second year of college when I had a very, like my parents are smart people, but they're not like intellectuals. Right. Like I didn't grow up with like the New Yorker around the house or something. Mm-hmm. And I made this friend in college and her dad was a Yale professor and he had sold a a business to Coca-Cola and they were extremely rich. And I went to their house and there were stacks of books everywhere. And they read the New Yorker and all these things where I was like, basically when I met him, I thought, wow, I have access to like an adult that's thinking about stuff. And he was Jewish. So I said to him, I'm like asking sort of just the practical question of like, well, why do Jews need a home state? Like, why is the state sort of the container for our safety? And he said to me, why would you even ask that? That's such an insane question. That's like a question you're never supposed to ask. And that to me was the beginning of being like, well, why is there a question that you're not supposed to be thinking about here, right? Because like so much, and I think this is like sort of like a Jewish, Asian American overlap, right? Is that we think of ourselves as like education-minded people. You have to go to a good college. Like the upward mobility of my parents Mm -hmm. who are like professionals was to send me to college to become like a liberal arts kind of person. So the idea that then like the skills that I would learn by like sort of doing my filial piety thing would then be turning against my own people is very interesting. (laughs) So I started just looking into it and like asking questions of like, well, what if I just ask the basic questions that like make sense here? And like, it really quickly leads you down a a hole of like, okay, like this is not logically sound in any way. Like, why would I ever, if I don't support an ethno state in any other context, why would I support it here? It feels self-indulgent to talk about all this because it ultimately doesn't matter, right? I don't care what American Jews think, but like, it is sort of an intellectually interesting question of just Mm -hmm. like how do you bring your family on board with the project? Because a lot of like what manufactures the complicity in this is like feeling like your parents are going to be mad at you if you say anything about it. And like, I hate to disappoint my mother. It's like, I spent all of my life trying not to disappoint my family. And like a little bit like the trans thing opened up the floodgate for all the other things. Cause once you do the thing you're like not supposed to do, and it's deeply humiliating, then you're sort of like, well, it's already a sunk cost. I might as well just keep doing the right thing. <laughs> And Jamie, you've you've written about how you are also religiously observant. And I'm curious, like how I know we're we're trying not to we're trying to avoid the smelly lunchbox thing, but um just <laughs> one last question on your Judaism. Um, what does that mean? And like how weird are you then in being part of a free Palestine movement? I mean, I guess the religious observant thing is like a whole nother complex can of worms, right? Because my family is not observant. And I'm not as observant as real people that call themselves observant. I'm stuck <laughs> in this like weird gray area where like I do believe in God, but I didn't come to that through Judaism. And I think I think a lot about like my God, is it a Jewish God? And like trying to reconcile those things has been like a big struggle of the past couple years of my life, right? Because like I do believe there's a God. It's a it is sort of part of how I maintain my sanity. But like, do I believe the Jews are like a uniquely chosen people like that can't stand up to my politics. So like, there are certainly other Jews that are asking these questions and talking about them better to me. But I think like observance has been a little bit of like trying to bring my sense of God into alignment with a sense of something Jewish. Like right now, I'm like a half-assed keeper of Shabbos and maybe like a holiday celebrator. But part of it is like, if you're an anti-Zionist Jew, there aren't that many like formal institutions you can go to to be a practicing Jew, right? And like, there are people that are sort of having anarchisty seeming Jewish institutions. Like a lot of them are trans, honestly, like it's sort of Mm -hmm. a joke in my friend group of like, 
there's like always trans guy rabbis that are trying to tell you about how the Bible had five genders. And it's like, <laughs> there are like sort of these things in the making, but they're all a little more observant than where I'm at. So like, I feel a little bit like lost between five different things, um, trying to triangulate like my position within them. And I think a lot of Jews feel this right now, right? Where it's like my politics don't quite match up to my Judaism, don't quite match up to my sense of spirituality. And like, none of these match up to any of the Jewish institutions that like, a lot of them are funded and exist to uphold Zionism. Like they're like reform Judaism. Like I really grew up being told that like, it doesn't really matter if you believe in God, as long as you believe in Jews and Israel. So like trying to move away from that as like the center of my Jewish faith is something that's really hard. And like, I think a lot of young Jews relate to it. Like I'm, I'm definitely not alone in it though. I do just feel lonely because it's like, it's so counter to what sort of reform Judaism sells. Mm-hmm. I don't know how comprehensible any of that was. <laughs> No, I just I wanted to go back to this question about open letters. And I actually want to ask both of you this and then we can wrap because we're like at an hour at this point. But like, do you feel like there's a like, do you feel like this is a moment where people are being censored or that there is like a chilling effect that's going on where people who have jobs now, Jamie, like I agree with you that like, you're a very talented writer. You're one of my favorite writers. I've told you this on many occasions. And I think that those attributes will mean that you are going to be fine, you know? Um, and I think that that if I was in a similar position, I would probably be fine, right? Um, like, like there are other opportunities out there, but that's not true for everybody, right? There are people who are junior staffers or there are people who are assistant editors, associate editors, or people who are in much more precarious positions than, than you or I, or, you know, Tammy as well. Like, do you feel like there's a lot of, do you think those people are scared right now? Like, I, I don't know. I, I can't tell just because my social life is confined to talking to three other dads at soccer practice. <laughs> like, um, obviously I have friends in the media we have our opinions, but I wanted to know just from your perspective, like, do you, I know that you don't want to make too much of this or like, you don't want to make it a political stance, but whether you wanted to or not, it's going to be perceived as such, right? Um, a resignation after signing an open, explicitly political letter from an institution like the New York Times is always going to be perceived in that sort of way. So like, I don't know, like if there is some sort of, like, we're, do you feel like people are being silenced in this moment? Um, yeah, I mean, just to clarify, like, I'm fine with it being per- perceived as a political stance. I'm just, like, not sure how useful it is for me to, like, market it as one. You know what right, I mean? Right, right, like, right. I stand by what I said. Like, it's fine. <laughs> right. um, I don't know, because, like, there's so few entry-level jobs in our field that even allow people to make a living to begin with, right? So yeah. I'm, like, I think, that, like, I've definitely heard from other people within the Times or elsewhere saying like, well, I would love to speak up about this, but like, I can't afford to lose my job right now. So like, to that effect, I do think there are people that are like, keeping their opinions on this off the internet. And like, maybe they're showing up to protest, but they're like, not holding a sign and they're being low key, or they're just talking to their friends or whatever. Like, I definitely think there are people who are sort of like rerouting their activism through other channels, because they're scared of losing their job. But also I'm just like, what job, right? Like the vast majority of people in media just exist in this like extremely high level of precarity anyway. And like so few people are even able to make a full-time living doing this work to begin with. So like to me, a lot of like the best writers I know are people that are like writing half-time while they're also like 
a professor and a barista and working at a nonprofit and an mm-hmm. adjunct and whatever. Like, so I don't, I don't know. Like, I think when we talk about like, what is media as an industry, I think we need to be a lot more specific about talking about like, well, what types of jobs make up this field? Because like the the position of like the staffer at a, at a newspaper is like a really minority position of who produces right. like right. written journalism in this country yeah. to begin with. And I think that changes the calculus when you talk about free speech. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, Tammy, what about you? You feel like yeah. there's like a chill? I do. And I think, I, I mean, I, I guess I'll speak through the cases that I've learned about through the National Writers Union and through Wellog that there is both the kind of chilling effect that Jamie was just talking about where people are afraid to speak up, afraid to put certain kinds of language in their pieces about the conflict even um, for fear of retaliation. And then there's direct retaliation happening as well, where people are having contracts killed or, sh- or shrunk and um, where staffers are being disciplined. So, yeah, I mean, I without getting into explicit details, like for sure that's happening. And I think we're going to see more of it. I mean, the stuff about like, did you see that truck that's driving around Columbia with the faces of students that yeah. say pro-Palestine things? Jay? Like the Harvard one, yeah. As, you mean at Harvard? It's no, at no, there's one, as well. there's one at Columbia. Yeah, yeah oh, it's like a, yeah. a video truck. So I'm like, I, I think that's like the minority of retaliation. But like, I do think there's like an organized faction of people that are like out for vengeance against people that yeah. say stuff. And I do think that's a real risk, like maybe more real than it's been in other sort of like culture panic stuff. Yeah, yeah, it feels much. I mean, I will just say that I totally agree that the stakes seem much higher, you know, Um, like it used to be that maybe you show up on libs of TikTok and someone calls a bomb threat into your kid's school, you know, but like that's bad. 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 No, I mean, it happened in (laughs) Oakland here where, you know, they did some diversity day type of thing and, um, you know, libs of tiktok posted about it and then all the schools had to shut down or at least that school had to shut down because there was like a bomb threat called in but now you know the the stakes are much higher uh and it's uh i don't know i don't think that anyone really knows exactly what the line is right i don't want to sound like jordan peterson be like you have to like we don't know the line you know but like it does seem kind of true that there is a sense where people are trying to figure it out as they go along and um it's uh i don't know it is kind of scary in a lot of ways in terms of people thinking about their careers and what they can and can't say i can't really remember a time like that but it's just because you know I, we weren't i wasn't a writer at 9 11 i was like a lazy college student you know like it wasn't a thing so I don't know, maybe like I was 10 years old. So in some ways I'm like very naive and being like, oh, we would never repeat the like Islamophobia of 9-11. Like, of course, we've learned our lesson. And I'm I'm a little embarrassed at how naive I was. Like (laughs) when you were 12 years old, you remember? (laughs) Yeah. Like I'm like, oh, right. Like we didn't really learn very much at all, at least at the level of like mass culture. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I don't know who the we is there, but. It's it's uh, strange times. Um, all right. Well, I do have to now get going to go back to my main social group of dads at soccer practice. <laughs> it's the last one. So I'm a little bit, you know, like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? You know, <laughs> How's, is your, uh, How is your team up? Your time? <laughs> uh, I don't even know. I mean, we just kind of. Yeah, the season's over until the until the spring. And so. Um, you know, my main social outlet is about to disappear. 
get back on Twitter and, you know, yell about things again. But uh, yeah, thank you for coming on. Is there anything else you want to say or is there anything that you felt like you wanted to talk about that you didn't? Mm, I could talk forever, so probably this is this is a good place to leave it. Let me plug my uh, follow follow me on Instagram at sexchange.tbt for the archive stuff. I'm trying to build a huge audience to sell my book too, so you know, gotta gotta do the plug. It's an awesome yeah. account, I have to say. <laughs> it's a, you either have to make an archival uh, Instagram account or you have to be on Terry Gross. Those are the only two ways to sell a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, do books sell? I I don't know. We'll see when I finish writing it. But, I don't um, know. I've never like uh, it's very difficult. I think, at least from my experience, it's very, very <laughs> difficult. Um, all right. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. This is a, a podcast listener's parasocial dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everybody, just a couple more things. First of all, we wanted to thank you for all of the feedback you've provided since October 7th. Um, It's obviously been a really difficult time for all of us, and we're trying our best to get shows that, you know, get you guys thinking and help us think through this stuff. So, um, yeah, we really appreciate the feedback, and we we welcome it moving forward. Um, On another serious note, um, I am leaving the show in early December Um, So we have a few weeks left together. Um, Jay's going to explain in a second his plans for the show. We're going to continue. We obviously really love the show and the community, and we want to have uh, these conversations continue with you all. Um, I'm going to really miss Jay and May and all of you guys. I just am trying to find a little bit more time to work on my book project and um, yeah, just take care of other stuff in my life. So that is the reason why. And we can um, spend more time on my very last episode, I think, saying goodbye and and reflecting on the past three and a half years, but just wanted to give you guys a heads up. Um, so next week, Jay is going to be doing an episode on his own because I'm going to be flying back from Korea. And then we will have two more weeks together and the Jillian Tamaki Book Club, which we're really excited about. Um, right. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jake? The, the, uh, you know, the, it's obviously very, it's, the show is going to keep going on. I think it's the big headline here. Um, now under what form is still not quite formalized, but mm-hmm. I'm going to keep everyone updated as we keep going. Um, there's a lot of questions to answer, which is, you know, like, do we find a new co-host? Like, is it just a one-person interview show? Is it just me talking about basketball for an hour <laughs> uninterrupted? Like, these are all ideas that have been floated around. But the thing that is very clear is that we're very much going to miss Tammy. Um, Tammy is really the... I always think that Tammy owns half of the show. It's half hers, and it's certainly uh, been three and a half years of very great conversations uh, and certainly something that I think that resonated with a lot of people. And so it is, you know, it's sad that that part of the show is ending, but I want to say that like uh, we do appreciate more than anything, you guys, the listeners for the past three and a half years. And I hope you'll stick with us as we continue to go forward, but obviously it's not going to be the same. 
um, without Tammy here, just as it was not the same, uh, you know, when Andy left. Right. But, Mm -hmm. and so, um, you know, it's like that there are things that change over time. And so this is just another change. There's no, there's no like weird rumor mill speculation or anything (laughs) around here. Um, and so it just, you know, this show takes a lot more, much more time and effort than I think it might seem. And I do understand that if, uh, you know, it, it can get a lot, there's just a lot of time and people need space and they need, uh, they have other projects they want to do. And, um, you know, we always try and be as cognizant and aware of that as possible. And so going forward, the great unknown, but, uh, (laughs) we're going to keep, we're going to keep putting out episodes and if you have any suggestions, like, I don't know if you're like, wow, this person would be a great co-host or here's some good guests that yeah, you could check out. Please don't just talk by yourself for an hour and a half. It's <laughs> super, super toxic. Um, you can just email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can just DM me. Um, but yeah, going forward, the show is going to be quite different. You know, I think. At a, it will be it'll it's a real loss but you know um we are going to keep going forward more so. basketball and gambling yeah basketball and <laughs> i think there's enough of both of those types of podcasts right now so um yeah please uh stay tuned and we'll just keep you updated thanks